0: I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half, half as, as well. well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like.
1: Explained half as well as you deserve.
0: Okay, we are in it, folks. Deep in it. The Silmarillion.
1: <laughs> That's what I've been waiting for.
0: Yeah, this is definitely William's favorite book. Um,
1: and I think this he... was Tolkien's favorite book.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. You know. Yeah, definitely. I've talked many times about how it's very clear that Lord of the Rings was just this big compromise in order to get kind of the the greatest hits of the Silmarillion out to a large public.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Even though they're so very different, um, when you look at the three big works, the Silmarillion, The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings, to me, the Silmarillion and The Hobbit are like totally unfiltered Tolkien. Yeah. The Hobbit, because that was his first big hit that came out and it was huge. And the Silmarillion, because... It was an unpublished work during his lifetime, and you don't get much more creative freedom than that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when The Hobbit was a huge hit, it was just like he was under so much pressure to uh, follow it up with a story about hobbits when all he really wanted to do was get into his older myths and legends. And what came out of that was The Lord of the Rings, which, it's you know... Great. Is great, and I love, I think we talked a little bit about in those episodes, um, I love kind of this cobbled together nature of it. I mean, at some points, the tone is very different than at other points, and there's the appendices which tell uh, crucial information that are not in the main text, and it's really just this like mishmash of all this other stuff, and I think it works great, especially as a recorded history, but... I feel there were lots of compromises and I feel like Tolkien, if he could go back, would have changed some things. And with the Silmarillion, he had his whole life to edit and go back and revise. Yeah. And um, so I truly see this was truly his life's work. He worked on it. This was the first thing he worked on, really. And this was the last major work that he worked on.
0: Yeah, I think the the mismatch in The Lord of the Rings, for me, is, is not so much about like the world or the story. I think all of that is cohesive enough Mm -hmm. and um it really comes down to the style of of the type of story he's telling and it's definitely clear that everything in the lord of the rings really ranges on this spectrum from the hobbit to silmarillion where it's like super you know minute kind of folk tale telling like around the campfire that you kind Mm -hmm. of find in in the hobbit all the way to the most dry historical text that is is kind of more what the Silmarillion is like
1: yeah I mean I like to joke around that the Lord of the Rings is on one hand it's presented as this sequel to the Hobbit um with these Hobbits specifically Frodo and Sam as your chief characters when really what it is is a sequel to the Silmarillion that's really about Aragorn yeah um and it's both of those things but you do get that kind of whenever it's more like Hobbit centric, it feels more like The Hobbit. And yeah. then when it's getting more into Aragorn and his lineage, right. all the characters of the Silmarillion are like Aragorn's ancestors to some degree. And so to know that it's all building up to him and the restoration of the kingship really makes it feel like a sequel to the Silmarillion.
0: Yeah, it's really funny. You know, I in last episode you mentioned trying to read the Silmarillion too young. Uh, which I totally understand what you're mm-hmm. saying, because it is very dry. On the other hand, when I think about myself, like at age 12, um, I think I had a a lot better attention span for like, myths and just like reading Greek myths oh, totally. and, uh, than I do now. It's a lot harder mm-hmm. for me to kind of like, sit and focus on this drier form of, of narrative. And so I, I sort of, Wonder if, like, you had never read The Hobbit, if you had never read The Lord of the Rings, if you were just given the Silmarillion, would it be easier to absorb that information if you're not searching for the world of Tolkien in it?
1: True, yeah, because, I mean, I also was really into Greek mythology and I would search out anything I could and, like, find, like, all these, like, stories of, you know, these lesser nymphs of Poseidon and, um...
0: I just think I was, like, you know, when I was that kid who did really obnoxious <laughs> things like i i tried to teach myself you mean the like a nerd yeah like i tried to teach myself latin when i was like 10 to 12 just and wait way too young to just really. <laughs> really way too young to to definitely too young to like teach yourself something like that yeah when you're not a literal genius which i don't think i am so um i i wonder if i would have been like wow the valor you know like yeah well, amazing um and I am I think that's like the most interesting part of this this first section but do you want to just go ahead and Yeah we can just dive it? right into yeah. it
1: and go right into the uh Ainu Lindale which Oh, so good is um you know I'm a lover of Norse and Greek and Native American mythology and I you know I'm not necessarily that Christian but I love reading especially a lot of Old Testament Christian stuff um because I just love a good mythological tale and a good uh a good origin story for the universe. And honestly, even though this was written in the 20th century, I, I rank this up there with all those other myths, um, I think. And it might be one of my favorite too.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate this concept that Tolkien weaves into his stories of uh, like life through song and sound. Yeah. Um, I think it's really beautiful and, and uh, the concept of these... Sort of, sl- for lack of a better kind of way of talking about, it, like celestial beings mm-hmm. um, singing to each other. Yeah, the Ainur. This, this great music that eventually will lead to um, the creation of the world.
1: Which they don't know. They just think they're <laughs> making a piece of art right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, so we're introduced to the chief character here in this chapter, uh, God, Iluvatar. <laughs> the one. And the second character to be introduced here not too far after is a guy named Melkor.
0: Oh, yeah. Big fan.
1: He likes to kind of march <laughs> to the beat of his own drum.
0: Yeah. Um, What to say of Melkor? I mean, just by his name. Like, we know he's a bad guy. <laughs> Melkor. Like immediately, you know, but I-, I think it's really interesting that his corruption stems out of being the most powerful.
1: Yeah, the only difference between him and the other Einor in the beginning is that he is just by and far the most powerful of all of them.
0: And with that power has come a great yeah. desire to create his own makings. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think there's a couple things. There's the fact he's more powerful than all the others, but he's still second powerful to his father, Iluvatar. Yeah,
0: It's very Oedipal.
1: Yeah, he's like, the son wants to usurp the father.
0: And that sort of... Sets him on a path to destroy all of the creation around him that isn't his, or at least corrupt it in his way.
1: Yeah, he wants to create things that come solely from him. Right. But being that he came from Iluvatar, that can't be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And Iluvatar tells him, like, whatever you try to do, man, will only, like, rebound to my greater glory. Yeah. Which is such a huge theme throughout his work on the very nature of evil itself.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, you and I were talking about earlier which of the Ainur we most identified with. And as evil as Melkor eventually becomes, especially once he's named Morgoth by yeah. the elves later on. In this initial phase, when they're just these like beings yeah. singing a, a Celestial song, it... Um, it's relatable, right? Like, Melkor is the ego of man. That's how I see it In if we're to, mm. you know, if we're to look at this allegorically or as a cosmology. Mm-hmm. Melkor, the, the beginnings of this great corruption and what will eventually lead to the marring of the world really stems from this overabundance of, like, pride and the desire to, like, be in charge and the desire for power. Right. Um, even though he is the most powerful of the initial beings created by Eluvitar,
1: Right. And you and I were talking a little bit about how he's almost like just an artist that wants to create something that is truly and only his and is not derivative of anything else. Yeah. But... He's slowly realizing everything is derivative. Right. And it frustrates him to the point of madness. Yeah. Uh, so like any creative person that's just going off the deep end, trying to create something that is truly from their own soul. I don't know. I think he really speaks to that. Right. And um, I, I can see why you especially identify <laughs> with Melkor.
0: I know. I I have a tendency to identify with the more Machiavellian characters anyway, and, and just people who are powerful yeah. and know they're powerful. Um, I just, I always love darker characters who are very powerful. Um, But especially, I I think, at this stage in his, you know, I don't Mm. necessarily relate to Morgoth, but I I see this as, like, a pretty human experience and, and definitely something that is pertinent to the human path.
1: Yeah, and well, I think one thing Tolkien's trying to get at with Melkor, especially here in the beginning, and we just see this rebounded so many times with different characters, is the dangers of... Being a creator yeah. and um, trying to create something, whether it's art or otherwise. Right. Um, there are these traps you can fall into of pride and ego and possessiveness and jealousy and envy. This is what sets Melkor apart from, like, Iluvatar. Right. And so. I just
0: want to say real quick before we move on to the other Ainur that are named. I do think it's interesting that Iluvatar is not presented as, like, an angry or vengeful god, um, or creator, he is very much, like, above it all. He's very removed. Yeah. Um,
1: well, I, I like the idea that he kind of bequeaths, he seems almost just, like, personalityless. Like, he's just yeah. this force of creation. Because the Valar can't create. Only Luvatar can do that. Right. But it's like he's bequeathed all his personality to the Valar and the Maiar.
0: Right, and they're um, all who different. Who come from him. Yeah, they're, like, shards of the same mirror that reflects iluvitar you know and but i think it's interesting you know that the the creator is not portrayed um as like a sort of judge or jury or punisher or anything like that i i I think that's a unique
1: (laughs) i mean no it's like he's delegated mandos to be the the judge and jury um, yeah exactly and uh yeah
0: let's get into a little bit more about the individual valor
1: So we're told like the three most important ones and the ones that had the most to do with the fashioning of Arda are Manwe, Aule, and Almo. Very elemental. Manwe, you know, the god of like the skies, Almo, the lord of waters, and Aule is the blacksmith deity of Earth. And then we also have some pretty important queens of the Valar. Varda, who's Manwe's spouse. She's the lady of the stars. And Yavanna, who is this mother Earth type deity uh she's this nature goddess and then i'd say there's some uh some lesser ones that are mentioned a lot that are still more important than other less important ones which i would include like orome he's definitely this uh hunter woodsman mm-hmm. god tulkas he is sort of the physical champion of the gods whenever anyone specifically melkor <laughs> needs his ass kicked yeah uh there's like Sin and tulkas. He kind of exists just to kick Melkor's ass. Right. Then there's Mandos, who is the keeper of the houses of the dead, which are actually also called Mandos. And yeah, and then we have these kind of lesser ones like Nessa and Vana, and they're just not quite as important. These are kind of the more elemental gods or mandos especially being the keeper of the houses of the dead he's a lot like hades in greek Mm -hmm. mythology so yeah those are probably the big ones that you need to know i don't want to get too bogged down in all these different names because tolkien does throw a lot at you well and And it's
0: like if you want to get bogged down you're welcome to sure but i'm just saying for
1: a a new new reader (laughs) of this book like one thing i will recommend is like you only have so much brain space to put towards this book right try to only focus on what's important and i'll try to like point out as we go along you don't need to worry about all this, and you can only really know that if you read through the book, right? Which kind of sucks because yeah, it's like yeah, I had to yeah. do it the old-fashioned way, and just like I kept thinking, "Oh, this character is super important. I'm They're gonna, gonna have show to. Up I'm gonna have to learn them." And it's like they yeah, were only they in that chapter, don't. yeah. So, no, but that- the ones I just kind of went over are the the big ones that are the most important to the overall narrative,
0: right? And so, you know, that, that is mostly coming from the Valaquenta, which is sort of this like breakdown list of...
1: Yeah, it's the account of the Vala.
0: Yeah. Jumping back into the Ainu Lindeley really quickly, they sing this great song. And I, I thought what was very interesting of this part is uh, they just think they're creating this work of art and they're kind of like, wow, what a wonderful world that must be or like that we've just sung mm-hmm. about. And then Iluvatar sort of says like, yeah, that's like, that's the plan. Uh, go make it. (laughs) Then they realize like, oh, oh shit, that's like a real thing that we're going to go do. And then, uh, they, that's when they actually go into Middle-earth and, and build Arda.
1: Yeah. And the Ainur then are divided into two subsets. The more powerful of them, which are called the Valar and the less powerful, which are called the Maiar. Only real difference being the Maiar have like less natural power. And then, yeah, the Valaquenta goes right into pretty much going through all of them and listing their attributes and what they're all about. Yeah. And, you know, we just went over a lot of the more important of the Valar. But then they also talk a bit about the Maiar. Mm-hmm. And we're told a couple of lesser water... Maiar that serve Almo. There's Ase and Uanin. And Ase, we find out that he was at one point perverted to Melkor's service, but then won back. And Mm. he's like the reason for all these storms in the ocean. Hmm. He's very like wrathful. We also learn a little bit about Melian, who, uh, you know, wandered in the gardens of Lorien, and she will be important later on. And we hear about this one guy, Aloran, who's very wise. And uh, if you remember in Lord of the Rings, Gandalf said that his name in the West was Aloran. So this is Gandalf's true Maya Mm -hmm. form. So even right here in the beginning, you know, they mentioned like, you know, he's not really important to this story, but he will be important later on uh, in time. He like moved all of like these things in Middle Earth that led to the overthrow of Sauron. Right. Which we also get a mention of Sauron here and how he was originally a Maya in the service of Aule, but then he followed Melkor down his path to evil. Again, he doesn't do a whole lot in the story. He'll pop in later, but he, he plays an important role in one of the more important stories But he's not in the the Silmarillion a whole lot. But we do get a nice little backstory for him, which will lead into him becoming the new Dark Lord. And in this story, he's kind of more the the henchman to the Dark Lord.
0: Right. And all I can really say about, honestly, this whole section, kind of up until the end, when we're starting to see some elves be in in Middle-earth, already this is so removed, so far removed from the stories that we've just read. Um, and we're so like telescopically back, um, and far away and like at the beginning of time. So,
1: but I love that we're still dealing in similar themes that we see play out on a much smaller up close level between like two humans or something later on.
0: Right. Exactly. Um,
1: But now in this time we're dealing in the ages before time was counted before men or elves even existed yet. That leads us pretty much right into the beginning of days. The first chapter of the Quintus Silmarillion or the Silmarillion proper. Those first two books were just kind of... uh, Little intros. Little prologues to our story. Um, Very important. Um, But now the the actual narrative is beginning. And uh, yeah, the Valar go down into the world and they shape it and try to create this perfect habitation for what they know will come, which is the children of Iluvatar, elves and men.
0: And uh, Melkor... Just not into that. Yeah. (laughs) He really uh, seeks to destroy all of that. And I actually, we were talking about this driving the other day because I was trying to understand like, well, what is actually at the base of that? And you explained sort of that it really comes from this desire Melkor has to create his own thing and not being able to creates this like rage and eventual madness where like all he can possibly do is destroy.
1: Yeah. Just throw his evil servants at stuff, corrupt everything. Yeah, he's just, he's a, uh, he's a cat that has to piss on everything to mark it as his. Um, and he's not going to be happy until everything is stained.
0: And another way you put it was sort of like, Melkor has the ability to lie to himself about his intent. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's just a, uh, a theme in a lot of his ideas of the nature of evil. Which is like, to get to an evil point, you have to be able to lie to yourself about your intentions. Um, Because no one actually is like trying to be evil, but people do go after what they want. And um, like we've said, Melkor just wants this blank canvas to paint on, and he can't have it as long as the world exists. So, uh, you know, he's trying to become this ruler in Middle-earth and rule kingdoms, but it kind of doesn't make sense with his true nature because he's eventually going to destroy all of
0: it, right? Right. Um.
1: So he's like still able to like, he's like mad to the point of lying to himself that he's actually going to enjoy being a ruler of Middle Earth, <laughs>
0: right? Exactly. Um, which
1: he will never be satisfied, and
0: with. he'll never actually be able to reach that. Like, the, his, yeah, yeah, his nature. So he's already set
1: up this uh, cycle. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Getting into the world here at the beginning of days, I think it helps to kind of picture what it looked like one of the first major things the valar do is put up these two big lamps of light one in the north of the world and one in the south and at this time the world is basically a big flat disk the world is flat so there's one giant pillar in the very north of this circle and one giant pillar in the very south the world is pretty symmetrical at this point there's like one big continent right in the middle and then a big lake right at the center and then at the center of that an island and that's where the valar live Right at the center of Arda. And everything is perfect. And then Melkor gets all these uh, lesser spirits that he's perverted to his side. And he overthrows the lamps. The light and the fire rages out all over the world. And everything is fucked. And one thing I think is very interesting at this time is it's mentioned that he had help from spies of the Maiar that he had amongst the Valar. Uh, And I have to imagine this is Sauron. Because right after this, we hear about the first mention of Sauron in the Quintus Silmarillion, which is that he was placed in command of his fortress, Angband. We never see when Sauron switches from Aule's allegiance to Melkor's, but it had to be at some point before that, and right here we hear that he had spies of the Maiar. Also, Aule helped build these pillars. Sauron, being a pupil of Aule, would have probably had the inside scoop on, like, how to mess them up and bring them down. Right. So that's always kind of been mm. my headcanon of that Sauron played a crucial role in Melkor destroying the two lamps. And since the world is so just fucked up right now, and it takes kind of all of them to restrain everything Melkor is doing to Arda, they kind of don't want to mess up the world anymore.
0: Yeah, they're pretty afraid of what Melkor could do if the elves were awake right, and there. <laughs>
1: So, and, and they've brought to life all these beautiful things and they're like, they, they want to preserve it. So they take as many beautiful things they can back to, again, think of the world as a big disc, the westernmost lands, which are called Amon or the Undying Lands. This is a very slender continent on the very western edge of the world. And they raise up these mountains, the Pelori Mountains. You'll see that word a good bit, um, which is kind of like the fence that fences in Mm -hmm. the land of the Valar. And then all the land behind that is called Valinor. So Valinor is technically not the Undying Lands. It's just the plains behind the mountains. But I don't know. (laughs) Amon, Valinor, the Undying Lands. These are all words you can kind of interchange, even though they technically have different designations. Right. Um, but Tolkien will use these different words and they're all talking about essentially the same place, the land of the gods. So they're, there waiting for the coming of elves and men specifically, hopefully to bring elves there so that they can live in a world unstained by Melkor.
0: So after the lamps have been overturned, they decide to kind of create something that they think is a little more <laughs> stable. And that's where they get the two trees,
1: which is actually our, our logo. Yeah. Yavana. this is her big, uh, contribution to Arda and they are these two big trees of this holy divine light uh one gives off a golden light Laurelin and the other one Telperion gives off a silver light and if that sounds like the sun and the moon that's very intentional and we will get there yeah um the sun and the moon doesn't exist yet This is the only source of light in the world. And also, this light doesn't reach beyond the Pylori Mountains.
0: Right, so it's just there.
1: So Middle-earth is in darkness. It is kind of ruined by the overthrow of the lamps, and Melkor rules there. And all the Valar now live in Valinor, uh, where they live in a land of light uh, from these trees. And it's all gravy.
0: Speaking of Yavanna, that brings us to the next section, Aule and Yavanna. Mm Mm-hmm. Aule is a creator by nature, Mm -hmm. and I think what's really interesting is that he's a great foil for Melkor, and he kind of achieves everything that Melkor would like to achieve. The big difference is his humility. In this section, we learn that Aule creates, um, he sort of finds out about the children of Iluvatar. He finds out that elves and men are going to come, and he's inspired by this idea of creating like intelligent life and sets out to make his own intelligent life. That's how the dwarves are created.
1: Yeah. And aluvatar though comes and he's like, um, <laughs> you can't, <laughs> you can't do that. What the fuck dude. <laughs> um, but you know, when, uh, Ale, like lifts up his hammer to smite them, then to honor his, you know, father essentially, and shows his humility, Aluvatar has mercy and yeah. allows him to keep his creation and grants them life so that they're not just these like automatons that only repeat what Ale yeah, says. Yeah,
0: this is like such a better version of the Abraham and Isaac story. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's it's definitely Ilu-
1: inspired by yeah uh, Abraham. Um
0: because Aluvatar doesn't even ask Ali to like destroy you know, Ali's going to do that of his own volition it's not this like hi i told you to do this thing and you almost did it don't though like yeah. glad to see your yeah it's, it doesn't have that same kind of um test test yeah to, element it. to it it's more like as soon as ally explains himself and and his reasoning and why he ever created the dwarves aluvatar is convinced of his like purity yeah. in in that task and Realizes that it's like a, a really good thing that Owlay was inspired to, to do this. But the one condition is that the dwarves have to wait to be awoken. Yeah,
1: the elves are destined to be the firstborn. So, yeah. you know, they got to wait till the elves awake first. And he says that there will always be strife between, you know, his children and Owlay's children. And, I mean, we see elves and dwarves have lots of strife. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll see also, like, why that is from a historical approach, but just from a uh, creation of the species, <laughs> right, uh, like, yeah. look at it. Like, we see even back, their natures are just so opposed. Just different, And yeah. The dwarves are always described as pretty alien in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. It's just, they're just, they have their own culture. They stick to themselves. Um, and even though elves and men are in nature very different, they have way more in common than men have with dwarves or elves have with dwarves. Right. And that's because, you know, dwarves were just created by an entirely different being.
0: Something I actually really appreciate about this is this is something that exists in human culture, right? There are different peoples of different beliefs who, according to their beliefs, their people come from a completely different source than all of the other people in the world, which I think is very interesting. I I, I love that that like multiculturalism is found in this book as well. And this acknowledgement of like different creators.
1: And while we don't just get the creation of The dwarves in this chapter. We also get into uh, the Ents as well. Yeah, and that the Ents were created as a direct response to the dwarves.
0: Yeah, Yavanna's pretty like bummed out. Here she is. She's dealt with the scouring of Arda by Melkor, and now she's heard that that not only the children of Iluvatar, but also this other people, the dwarves are all going to have some sort of impact on nature and cut wood and cut down all of her creations and kill plants and stuff like that just by the nature of them existing there. And she's sort
1: of bummed. She's like, "Well, who's going to look after my shit?" Yeah, she's like...
0: like, "I I've already dealt with so much destruction and remember she's the one who has to create the two trees when the the lamps fall she has played a pretty important role yeah. in the the saving yeah. of valinor and and the part and of all things Earthly that are life. still good left in the world yeah exactly <laughs> so um and and to that eluvatar acknowledges yeah. that there's
1: yeah they're a like plan there was a, a plan in the music for this um and it is the shepherds of the trees which are are later known as the ents
0: and you talked about this during...
1: Either the Treebeard or the Flotsam and Jetsam cha- yeah. chapter. Um, yeah. Um, well, I think it's really interesting because Owlay has all these people uh, and pupils under him that are like a fallen people to an extent. I mean, the dwarves were created out of his folly. As we'll see, This a large part of the Silmarillion is about the Noldor elves who are this fallen uh, group of elves that leave paradise uh, essentially led by this Luciferian rebellion. And um, and then he even has two uh, of the Maiar that were his pupils, Myron and Kurumo, who are later known as Sauron and Saruman, who fall. And so I love especially the Battle of Isengard when the Ents attack Isengard, because this is really the... Um, You know, Saruman's sin against the Ents was really what they're talking about here is his machinery and his forges and um, eventually the wrath of nature becomes too much. So this is that check and balance that is introduced here, even though, you know, it's not a dwarf, it's Saruman. But he's still a pupil of Ale that is trying to create his own... Uh, machinery.
0: I doubt that a, that an episode of this while we're covering the Silmarillion will go by where we don't talk about how like there is this like implicit danger of deep deep sin in yeah. creation um, and engaging with a creative process which I think is just like for someone who dedicated most of his life to creating an entire language, an entire world, yeah. um, multiple epics within that world, there's a lot of
1: self-awareness. <laughs> <happening> <laughs> this is here. like
0: clearly something that Tolkien was wrestling with as an author of just like the power of to create, cre- create
1: your own world, and then kind of becoming slave to it. Yeah, um, I mean,
0: and and just like especially that we're learning this through the book that he wanted to publish but was never to be published until after his death
1: yeah so this leads us into the coming of the elves and the captivity of melkor um even though a lot of the valar live in valinor uh there's still a couple that go out into middle earth including oromei you know, he likes to ride abroad and hunt the monsters of Melkor that exist in Middle Earth. And one day while he's out there, he finds these uh, these strange people by this lake uh, under the starlight. Oh, I, I guess that's them elves I heard about. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so they, they awake underneath the starlight to the sound of uh, water trickling. So to them, you know, Varda, the Lady of the Stars, is their most revered, followed probably closely by Almo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all elves that says has this yearning for the sea Mm -hmm. because they awoke hearing that sound of water and you know all water flows out to the sea right and so uh orme reports back to the gods and they're just like the time has come this is what we've been waiting for (laughs) right and they're like well we can't allow them to exist in middle earth with melkor ruling over
0: it right
1: so we got to go to war I really like this part of how it talks about how the elves themselves weren't aware of really what happened during that war because they set up a guard to protect the elves. <laughs> and then the, the battle was so catastrophic that it was almost like the destruction of the two lamps and the fires that went out over the world. The world was, again, totally changed during the Battle of the Valar. Right. Here.
0: Right, because, you know, this isn't just a normal war. These people are fighting through elements and, like, land yeah, masses. And, and, and this is
1: why the Valar don't get too involved yeah. in things. Because, like, when they do, it's going to change the entire world. So it's fine to do that now before elves and men and dwarves are all there. But the more populated Arda becomes, the less... They want to do anything. You know, and, and, you know, their power is finite also. So they put forth most of their power in the beginning and then kind of recede over time as mankind takes over the world. That
0: just reminds me of something that's mentioned about Alma really early in the beginning, which is that he stays in the sea, he lives alone, and he rarely, like, comes up. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, like, terrifying <laughs> to see this giant tidal wave rise just from Poseidon the sea. Poseidon rising, like, you know. Yeah, um, um,
1: no, totally. And um, this is actually referenced in The Lord of the Rings during Theoden's Charge, where it said that he was like or during the battle of the valar okay. when the world was young yeah right um so yeah it's kind of cool to make that connection back to th- this actual epic event that precedes the awakening of even mankind so yeah they defeat melkor chain him up drag him back to valinor and and toss him in mandos uh
0: and he tries to it says he sues for like understanding for and, and for pardon and yeah He's trying to, you know, be like, like, "I'm not too bad."
1: (laughs) Well, they're just like, uh, "We'll we'll hear your uh, uh, plea when that court date happens ages from now." Yeah, exactly. Um, But for now, you got to go. And um, by which we mean come, which is fine, cool. We have separated Melkor from the elves. (laughs) Perfect. Everything is great now, right? Uh, But then they're like, "Let's invite the elves to come live with us in Valinor." Um, Yeah, of which Almo is opposed.
0: Which is a great, I mean, almost smart about this. I think he had the right idea. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, the text says right there that, like, many sorrows afterwards befell because of this.
0: Yeah, I, I think something that's very interesting, as much as we're to see the Valar as, like, deities, they're by no means without fault oh, or, yeah. or, like, misjudgment. Um, they're definitely more like the Greek pantheon that way. They like have this very, um, real effect on things, but their, their desires may not be righteous or, um, might not end well.
1: Yeah. And they want, you know, the elves to come live with them and they want to teach them things and, and, and and share and, you know, the, the glory of Iluvatar and God, but almost trying to like counsel them, like, listen, Melkor's gone from Middle-earth. They're wild. They're free. Let's let them stay that way.
0: Yeah.
1: Do we really need to, like, try to ennoble them to, like the point of our being because they're not they're like lesser yeah. than us and they'll
0: never they'll never become so to like our level yeah like, so it's kind of like why
1: tempt them with the light of the trees right. they're just going to have this epic fall which they do
0: right and i don't and know we'll, we'll learn more about that as we read on
1: yeah and i just like that alma is like guys we're gods let's uh <laughs> yeah. you know like we don't need to be all up in their business right. like uh just being elemental we are interacting with them and like helping them from afar we don't need to like let them know that we exist and either uh make them fear us or envy us and i don't know i've never been a big manway fan i'm like why was almo not made chief of the valor but you know i guess that's (sighs) the uh mystery of Iluvatar that no one really knows other than Manway.
0: I'll try to hold back on my Manway complaining because we haven't really gotten to it yet. But Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: There's some irritating parts with yeah, him. but um, he's annoying. This begins the uh, summoning of the elves to Valinor. And I think this is where I would always, when I was reading, tune out a little bit. I always liked the early days, like this epic mythological stuff. And I like a lot of the later stuff, but really describing how this great journey separates the elves and yeah i totally into did different not. cultures i
0: i definitely lost track and that this <laughs> is this section
1: yeah and that this journey is the reason why there are so many different elven cultures um and you gotta realize tolkien was writing this he came up with the languages first and it was writing this backstory for right. why these languages exist. So he's talking about the sundering of all these cultures and that they all, some of these guys got lost on the journey or turned away on the journey. And some of them went to Valinor, some of them stayed behind. Um, and this is the, the cause of these different languages. I kind of wish he would just skip to once everyone is where they're supposed to be. <laughs> and then this was all just like a couple paragraph of a prologue.
0: Well, of course this goes um, back to the whole thing of like, we've said this before about like his very much published work lord of the rings where there are sections where it's like were these just his notes and he like meant to come back to this and, and kind of it flesh out, it out a little or bit like, or take it away or and make it
1: more concise yeah and... or like
0: you know this doesn't seem like publishable material this was just like for, like this. for like, him to for like him. kind <laughs> of keep his
1: head straight of like where everything is these
0: are his own Melkor machinations <laughs> exactly
1: but uh, and so he throws a lot of again names at you about the different designations of what defines these different elves. Uh, so I'm gonna try to do my best to sum it up briefly, <laughs> sum it up, and tell you what to focus on and what okay. you can just ignore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so originally there's this big split between the elves that want to go and the elves that are like we're good. The ones that stay and we're good, they're the Avari, the dark elves. They don't ever really gain any greater knowledge of the world and they're kind of content that way this is kind of like how alma wanted them to be it's just like all beat like the avari um but then there's the elves that go on the great journey and they're divided into three groups the vanyar the noldor and the tellery now the vanyar you don't need to know anything about them they're, excellent <laughs> they're perfect they're perfect elves they they're the most eager to be gone and go see valinor once they get there they're happy and they live in bliss and they don't really do anything perfect they sit at the feet of manway's mountain and just kiss his ass all day long. love it manway loves them they love manway and uh they're very boring
0: and we don't need to know anything about yeah. them okay Perfect. so
1: they're just one of those three groups um and they kind of just exist to show to contrast against the other two like this is kind of more their ideal state but then we have the Noldor and uh, yeah, you're going to have to know the Noldor. Yeah. Um, most important. Which is like easy to just say that, but then the Noldor have the most characters and like yeah. a lot of Fins and <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me see, Finway, Fingolfin, Fingon, Finarfin, Finrod.
0: Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the Noldor family tree is like, the Silmarillion is this big epic family drama about the Noldor royal family, essentially. Right. Very important. They are the group that is most beloved by Owlay, and they are the, like the craftsman elves. And
0: they will fall the hardest. Yeah,
1: they <laughs> seek knowledge the most, and they, you know, will, you know, fall pretty hard. And then the last group is the Tellery, who are still pretty important, um, but this is where it gets a little confusing, because they are the group that wants to linger the most in Middle-earth, so there's the most subsets of the Teleri. gotcha um and again you don't need to know most of them the only one i would say is important is the sindar these are the ones that wanted to go to valinor they made it all the way to the western lands of middle earth to the sea which they would have to cross over to get to valinor a lot of them went on but their king uh elway who was later known as Thingol, uh, stayed behind because he fell in love with Melian, who we l- saw earlier in the Valaquenta. She's one of these Maiar that would visit Middle-earth sometimes.
0: Which is interesting, given that she's Einor. And he's an elf. And he's an elf. Well, it's interesting that they would stay in Middle-earth yeah, rather than Valinor.
1: <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, the, they're kind of of this idea. We could create our own kind of Valinor-like realm here. But yeah, so the Teleri are really split here And a lot of them are wanting to go to the Undying Lands. And so Thingol's brother, Alway, takes a group of the Tellery, and they become the sea elves of the Undying Lands. And they will be important later on. Um, they're known for their shipbuilding, and their ships will be pretty important. But once the Noldor... And they'll
0: be on every cover of every Silmarillion. Oh my God, yeah.
1: <laughs> um... <laughs> But eventually the Noldor will return back to Middle-earth, and they will re-encounter the Sindar, who are Thingol's people, who were once part of the larger Teleri, but now they are uh, these kind of wood elves of Middle-earth that live in the land of Beleriand. And um, really, I would say, if there's any other group as important as the Noldor, it's the Sindar.
0: Gotcha. Um,
1: Which is a subset of the Teleri. Yeah. Okay which, you know, are also important because of the ships. But that's just kind of in the beginning of the story. After that, those particular tellery aren't that important. <laughs> so yeah, if, if all these names are just washing over you and you're like, what do I... Like, uh, uh, Noldor and Sindar. And fortunately, the, the Sindar, the royal family is very easy. It's Thingol, Melian, and they have one daughter, Luthien. Easy. Easy. Simple. <laughs> the Noldor... Fucked. Uh, Yeah, there's the king, he has three sons, and then they all have tons of children. So it's really all about this three groups of cousins. And um, anyway, we'll get into that into some of the later chapters. But this is just kind of really getting into those uh, different groups and how they all got separated. And I just, I can see a lot of people getting stuck here. And this this is where you need to persevere. If you can just get past this in the next couple chapters... You're, you're the, golden. You're probably in the clear. Cool.
0: Well, that being said, let's talk about this next and final chapter of the section, Thingle and Men- Melian.
1: Really short chapter. Yeah. Two pages. <laughs> I know. That...
0: Um, and this just talks about how Thingol and, and Melian fall in love and, and yeah. decide to be together.
1: Yeah. And that this is the reason for the sundering of the Tellery right that a lot of the elves were like waiting for their lord and he was enchanted in the woods by well, this
0: and yeah like isn't it that he they just like stare into each other's yeah, eyes yeah it's like he
1: sees her in the woods and they just both become like enchanted and it says it's like it's years before they even speak a word to each other they're, they're just, just staring, <laughs> staring each into their... each other's eyes yeah um uh, Tolkien's the ultimate Tolkien. romantic you know yeah
0: he's such a gushy romantic yeah. like such a magical fairy tale romantic um
1: but uh this is kind of a really big deal because you know they have i think at the very end it mentions that they brought to life the most beautiful child of the children of olivatar which is luthien and so she not only has the blood of one of the very first elves who ever awoke also she has the blood of the Einor in her that goes back to even before the creation of arda
0: Right, and we've heard about Luthien before, Tenuviel, Tenuviel. This is right, yeah. who um, Aragorn thinks that Arwen is, because Arwen is actually her like great-granddaughter.
1: Yeah, um, and Elrond is her great-great-great-great, probably like 60 great-grandsons. Right, yeah. Um, but yeah, so this is, uh, again, this is where Aragorn's bloodline really starts. Uh, Melian doesn't have any uh, parents, really... Other than Luvatar, you know, like she comes from Luvatar. So I've always found it very fascinating. We always talk about Aragorn, the heir of Isildur. I'm like, he's the heir of God. <laughs> he's descended from God himself, well, the creator.
0: You know, I think Tolkien kind of buries the lead here, but I mean, that's what's implied by royalty in our yeah, world, too. Yeah, the divine right to yeah, rule. Yeah, exactly. Um, that it, it comes from like actual like descendants from yeah. God and, and the choice of God is what allows you to be regal and be king. And um, so I I think it's really funny because it's like, yeah, that's totally true. And it is kind of buried here. You know, it's buried in the Silmarillion that he's literally a blood descendant of a celestial being.
1: Yeah. Who came from the thought of God. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. Uh, Pretty astounding. (laughs) Um, Wild stuff. Wild but yeah, so Thingol will just be a major, just geopolitical figure sure. going forward. Once we get into these wars with Morgoth, he's a very important yeah. uh, just ruler of these lands. So just uh, try to keep him in mind as we're going forward. Yeah, I just want to give a little bit of a recap of where we're at in the story and kind of, again, what to focus on. And, you know, you can reread the Silmarillion later and uh, try to uh, suss, suss out okay. these like lesser <laughs> details. But... You got the Valar and the Maiar, these godlike angelic beings that live in the uttermost west lands. Melkor is ruling in Middle-earth, but you also have Thingol and Melion are setting up a kingdom there in Middle-earth.
0: And they're still in darkness.
1: And they're still in darkness. They're still only uh, starlight. So
0: they were looking at each other in the dark. Yeah. Love it.
1: So Uh, (laughs) And, you know, they're the Sindar and... uh, over across the sea in Valinor, the Noldor are living. They will come back to Middle-earth here in a few chapters. Two trees are giving light to the land of Valinor, and that will be very important.
0: And there's big mountains dividing.
1: Right? Yeah, yeah. And a sea. Yeah, and, and a great sea. There's yeah. So basically there's two big continents. There's Middle-earth, which is in the middle of this great disk that we talked about that is Arda. And this narrow continent on the western margin of that circle is the Undying Lands. Right. And they're divided by a great sea and a big mountain range. So that's where we're at.
0: Perfect. I feel like there's not a ton to say about this. We're just kind of like setting up the stage and learning the players at this point. Yeah, play.
1: and I mean, that's all Tolkien's doing right here, really. Um, <laughs> again, yeah. uh, Like I, I like the Aina and the Vala Quinta. I think those are really cool um, prologue materials for a reader to read. Yeah. I almost wish this uh, ordering of the elves and their awakening was a third, just, like, separate (laughs) piece. And then, like, we start with, like, the creation of the Summer Elves. Right. Which we'll get to in a couple chapters. But, again, Tolkien's just, there's a lot of characters, there's a lot of places. Ultimately, what that means for Tolkien is a lot of names he can get into, which is really what he wanted to do. That's really
0: all he cared about. (laughs) Yeah, so he was like, let me, like... Let me make these names. Let me
1: create a story in which I can discuss as many names as possible. Yeah. So you just gotta bear with his... Eccentricities for a little while till we get to like the really meaty narrative.
0: Yeah, I think it's important in this this upcoming section to remember that he was a linguist and like that's what he loved. That's why the, any of this exists is like the creation yeah. of the Elvish language.
1: Yeah, and I'd say there's also, I mean, just forewarning a similar part to this section later on in the book when the Noldor come to Middle Earth and then they kind of like spread out and get settled. And again, it's like setting the stage for like the last half of the book. So, he's nothing if not thorough. Yeah. Totally.
0: So,
1: <laughs> again, the yikes. <laughs> again, the index, the maps, the family trees, all that stuff in the back are your friends. Uh refer to them as Judiciously as you can to help absorb that knowledge, but again, try not to get too stressed out over all these names and trying to learn every little thing.
0: Well, also everyone has so many different names, like especially the. um,
1: Well, yeah, it depends on yeah who who's talking about them—men or elves—uh, which language they're talking about, Quenya or Sindarin, and you know, which I think uh, is
0: like really playing on hard for for Tolkien is like oh yeah and you know how different cultures and different peoples and different languages have different names for things but it's like it's so funny like it's just like clearly this is all like, this dude gave a shit about you're a big <laughs> fucking nerd
1: dude yeah <laughs> like, yeah
0: it's pretty cool but it's also just like oh man yeah <laughs> it's like but could you
1: imagine a I think the Silmarillion would just be way more accessible if it's just like the Valar are just called the gods and you know, everyone just has <laughs> one name and it's just a oh, uh, pretty sure. straightforward story. And I think it's still a beautiful story that way, but. Well, um, and that's,
0: that's where it's like so important to remind yourself that like, oh yeah, this isn't, this version that we're reading was not made for other people's eyes. Like, I think literally he went, tried to get this published. His publishers laughed at him and told him to write the Lord of the Rings And then he probably never brought this in front of, like, a publisher again. I don't know if you know more about that from, like, letters and stuff. I would
1: have to dive more
0: into it. Um, That would be really interesting to find out. Like, I I would love to know if he ever tried to, like, publish The Silmarillion again. Simply because I would say what this book is is not... It's so academic, but it's about stuff that, like, he's created. I, I can't imagine any publisher was like, yeah, dude, this is... Fucking awesome! Send me a full transcript of it. You know, <laughs> like, the, like how how much of this would you read as a commercial, like someone trying to sell books? How much of it would you read before you're like, dude, there's no way? Well,
1: it's like people read books about Greek mythology and stuff, but that's because it's already this established.
0: It was th- a culture, yeah, in this like real world. And so Tolkien's trying <laughs> and to it create everything
1: entire people's worth of culture and mythology and it's just like yeah that's just not going to be a normal reading experience that you're just going to get published like the hobbit
0: no it's literally wild it's it's no it's it's totally wild that he ever made this um and that we get to read it is kind of a secret little treat <laughs> it's like emily yeah. dickinson's entire poems you know like it's amazing that we get to read any of it
1: yeah Thanks, uh, Christopher Tolkien.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, we salute you.
0: Okay, but that about wraps it up for this week. Next week, we will be reading Chapter 5 of Eldamar through Chapter 9 of The Flight of the Noldor. So is this going to be an exciting section?
1: Flight of the Noldor is pretty sick. Okay, I'm pretty excited. Uh, I know you're a big fan of Feanor. Yes. Like, from what I've told you and read to you before, yeah. uh, this is where a lot of that stuff comes into big play. Big
0: fan. He's the better version of Melkor. <laughs> he's the
1: he's essentially the elven version yeah, of Melkor. Yeah, he's like the sympathetic uh, version for me. Yeah.
0: You can of course subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at halfaswellpod.
1: Or you can check us out online at halfaswellpodcast.com, where we have our read-along schedule. I'm Sage and I'm William
0: and this is Half, Half as, as Well.
1: well.